everybody, and welcome to Healthy Discourse. It's Emily here, and I am so excited for today's guest. So is my dog, apparently, because she's barking. Um, (laughs) My friend, Alicia Logan, who is a nurse practitioner here in North Carolina, is going to be joining us today. And I had the pleasure of finally meeting Alicia in person a few weeks ago, or maybe it's been a little longer than that now. And I have been even more excited to welcome her on to the podcast since then. She just exudes energy and love, and I just love her story. And I'm so excited for you to be here today to share it. So welcome, Alicia. Well, thank you. What a warm welcome. I am so grateful for this opportunity, friend. (laughs) <laughs> well, I'm, I'm excited too. So Alicia, before we dig into kind of your journey over the pl- past several years, tell us just a little bit about you and your family. You're a wife and a mom and, and a medical provider and doing all the things. So tell us a little bit about your crew. Yes. So um, I actually have a lot of children. <laughs> so most people <laughs> You know, my family is my world. So I mean, my husband and I have been together for, um, oh my goodness, it's been almost 20 years and we have four children. And um, I joke, I say I have a lot of kids because they really make up um, and, and are the center of my world. Uh, we are um, a, a unique family. We homeschooled. We have two that are have finished high school and two that are younger and still in school. And so, um, you know, they are my why and my reason and my motivation. And um, we are a family that, that loves and worships the Lord. And we, um, that, that is also a very central part of who I am and the motivation behind so much of what I do. Um, and so, yeah, we, we just relocated to North Carolina from Indianapolis, Indiana, actually about three years ago. So we, so I'm a transplant, but I've come to really love the Carolinas. Yes. And, and uh, we're so glad that you came and that really launches us in well to kind of the beginning of your story, because tell us about why your family moved to North Carolina and your initial position and what you were doing and maybe some concerns that you had. Absolutely. So um, just a little bit of background, my husband and I, um, it's so funny, we've, we, um, we've, we've been together, like I said, for almost 20 years, but um, each of us come from divorce homes. So we've got parents, we had parents at that time in four different states. And so part of the reason for us moving from uh, Indianapolis back to the, the Carolinas was to be closer to my father-in-law, who was getting up there in age and had some health issues. And it was just a little more challenging to kind of navigate those remotely. So um, I started out looking for a uh, position. Um, I was working for a hospital organization in the Indianapolis area and um, came across a position uh, here uh, in Gastonia, North Carolina. So right outside of Charlotte. And, um, you know, was very blessed to work with a wonderful group of patients and also um, dually hold a leadership role. So I was working in an administrative role in primary care within the local hospital system that I work for. And, uh, you know, was, was actually a part of the early initiatives during the COVID pandemic. So 2020, like so many other hospital organizations, um, when COVID hit, we were like, well, what is this? And so mm-hmm. we did not, we didn't know, you know, what it was, how to respond to it. And um, saw really firsthand the uh, the response. I mean, of course, on the federal level, we all witnessed that, but just locally at the community level, 
um, from various organizations um, and really saw the, the panic and the terror and the fear that sweep not just the general public, but also healthcare professionals because no one knew what this was. And so this was like me, someone who normally is pretty quiet and reserved. I felt like I uh, had this uh, welling up of energy and I was like, you know what, I, I feel like I want to take this on like, you know, head first. And so I would, you know, go and do research and see what other countries were doing, would bring it back to my team. And I was like, hey, you know, I, I think that here's a treatment option. And this looks promising. And this is what we're doing in other countries um, and other countries. And I think that we could implement this. And, you know, was met, I think, pretty, pretty straightforward with really the, um, the sad but, but honest awareness that so much of hospital-based medicine is led and driven by federal protocols and guidelines. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was really challenging for someone, for myself, knowing that um, so many of my patients, their friends and family, and then very personally, my stepfather, um, who tragically passed away from COVID in June of 2020, um, mm. were, were um, you know, devastated and uh, impacted by this. And so um, that sent me on a quest. And so mm. that kind of, that, that led up to, uh, to me making some really hard but necessary decisions um, to leave what I knew as conventional or mainstream medicine. Uh, and so I... Um, I decided at that point, you know, of course, being a part of it, but then also witnessing it from the patient perspective and having those conversations with the intensivists about, you know, can we do this for my stepfather? Can we do that? Would you be, I mean, I remember at one point I was begging them to at least give him vitamin D. I was like, okay, like if you won't do anything, will you at least give him vitamin D? Like what's the harm? And, and was refused, was refused. And so, um, you know, it's like, I I hate to use this analogy, but it's like the matrix. It's like where you have like the red pill versus blue pill moment and you get to decide like which one you're going to take. And, um, and for me, I was like, okay, I I think I'm just going to have to open my eyes to the reality of what's, what's taking place around me. And when you're faced with that harsh reality and truth, you have to do something about it. Uh, Right. So I I made the decision uh, at that point to uh, step out and open up my own clinic. (laughs) Yes. And, and uh, I love just the, the God moments that you had in leading to opening your clinic because you were looking for space. And um, that story is pretty amazing. I think it's actually worth telling. Would you mind sharing the abbreviated version of of finding your space? Oh, not at all. Um, It is a part of my journey. And I love sharing and telling the story as much as I can. So of course, as I just said, I made the decision to open up my own clinic, but did not have a business sense. The first did not have a clue as to, you know, what this looked like, you know, how to execute this. And so started on a quest to look for space. I knew I needed a physical building to operate in and, um, you know, ran into one opportunity that did not pan out, um, just didn't work out. And so got back on the search and I was like, okay, Lord, like you told me to do this. And then it was, time was winding down. I was at the end of my 90 day agreement. So before you leave, you have to give a 90 day notice. And that time was winding down quickly. And I already told everyone that I was leaving. And so um, a week before, a week before I was, I was due to, to leave, I found a space. It was actually not the space originally that I was looking at. It was in the same parking lot, met a realtor. He took me uh, to look at the space I had intended to look at 
it didn't work out. He said, well, I got another space. I think you really like it's right across the parking lot. Like I know it's bigger and more than what you want, what you're looking for. Um, but I think if you speak with the physician there, he'll talk to you about it and kind of work things out. I was like, okay, well, if you say so. So I look at it and I was like, yeah, you're right. It is way more, way more money, way more space. I had not budgeted for this in, in any regard. And so he was like, so let me talk to him and see. And so um, to make a very long story short, we ended up um, working out an agreement because sadly this physician had cancer and had to terminate his lease early. So he was in a situation where he had to take care and prioritize his health, but was mm -hmm. still responsible for the balance of this lease. So I took over the balance of the lease. He, he actually paid for my first three months of lease payments and sold me EKG machines, computers, uh, tables, chairs, furniture, wall furnishings, lab equipment, supplies, um, all of it for a dollar. I um, just love it. It gives me goosebumps still. <laughs> for a I dollar. love it. Yeah. So when did you launch and when, when, when was it that you launched your practice? So August 2021 was our grand opening and uh, we opened our doors um, to the public uh, at that time. That's amazing. And you follow a direct primary care model, which I feel like we're going to be talking about a lot more here on the podcast because yes. <laughs> a lot of our friends are doing it and we've been listening actually, and, you know, looking into a lot of other things and learning more about, you know, the sharing partnerships and then these companies that will help the sharing companies negotiate for larger things. And then everyone has a direct primary care and it's so much more affordable for everyone. Anyway, it's just wonderful yes. and gives the patient so many more options, especially with access to your provider and choosing a provider you trust, getting insurance out of the way. But tell us about how your practice works from a membership model and or when you just want to be seen one time. Absolutely. So um, I think you're right. Uh, we are now seeing this shift where uh, patient care is being placed back in the hands of the patient. And so they are the consumer. So what direct primary care does is we essentially take out the middleman, which in most cases is the insurance company. And I directly work for my patients. So that means they have direct access to me. Um, they don't have to worry about waiting on procedures, testings to be approved because we're able to negotiate those discounted rates. Um, and we do that, so they have access, of course, to primary care services, but we offer a number of things in office that are also included at no charge. So in-office procedures, um, skin biopsies, joint injections, um, you know, mall removals, uh, various. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. All of that, in addition to your primary care and chronic disease management for just $85 a month. So it's a one-time fee. There's there's no co-pays, deductibles, um, no surprise bills, which I think is the most um, amazing thing about this is patients don't have to second guess or wonder if they're going to get a bill in the mail a month later for something they had no idea how much it costs. And so it has really taken off. Uh, you know, I would say, which is interesting, half of our patients have traditional insurance um, and half of them don't. And, mm -hmm. and it meets it meets both needs. And I think it's it's also becoming appealing because patients recognize some of the deficiencies that exist within our conventional medicine system, particularly as it relates to access to care. So this definitely helps to solve a need as it relates to access and also that personability that so many of us um, have looked for um, within the medical world. 
Right. I think once people dip their toe in to the non-traditional methods of care like yours, non-traditional medicine like Wiggy practices, which our listeners are familiar with here. And, you know, there's so much momentum going in that area. It's just like anything else. I think it can be hard to make a big change like that. But I I don't know anyone who is like, oh, that was a bad idea. I know zero people that <laughs> think that they yes. want to go back to, you know, honestly getting passed around to specialists for basically anything at this point. Because what I think we've seen happen a lot over the past few years is primary care completely eroding. And yes. there, there's, I don't, I'm not sure. And, and this is not, this is not about the providers, I, there's plenty of providers that are wonderful, but their their ability to do anything to truly treat a patient doesn't fit the model of um, a hospital system. So they're passed around to specialists for every last little thing, and it, it it's not it's I don't think that's probably very fun for the provider, and it's certainly not serving the patient well. Yeah, I I cannot agree with you more, and I think that. Um... One of the things that the past two years has taught us is it has really shined a bright light into the glaring deficiencies that exist within our system. And patients are recognizing that they don't have to settle for this, that they are the consumers. It is their money that is paying for this service um, and they get to make decisions. Um, And it also puts, I would say, honestly, it's a responsibility for me because my patients are the ones that are responsible for paying me, not an insurance company. So there's Mm -hmm. a different level of onus I have to ensure that their needs are met, um, you know, as opposed to me checking off boxes because an insurance company um, is, is telling me to do so. And with, with that being said, I want to be fair because I know I recognize that so many folks, you know, do rely on and have insurance and many practices do both. There is definitely a place for insurance. I tell, I tell patients all the time, like, you know, if you were to get in a car accident, you need car insurance. But your right. car insurance, your car insurance should not be paying for your oil changes because if they did, your weight would be astronomical, the cost would go up. And can you imagine what access to oil changes would look like if now millions of patients had to go through their car insurance to get oil changes? And that Mm -hmm. kind of makes sense to them. They're like, oh yeah, like you need insurance for catastrophic events. The other things, usually you can negotiate yourself for a much more affordable price. That's right. That's right. And and it's been really fascinating watching all these companies pop up that are collaborating with little pieces of this puzzle to make it better for the patient, better for the provider. And of course, because they're offering really unique services, it's capitalism at its finest, in my opinion. So this new, um, this whole, I'm encouraged, well, I've been discouraged by healthcare for a long time, but I'm really encouraged with where this direction seems to be going with new options for patients. I mean, I'm not going to say that it's going to take over and we're going to move back to your small town provider in five (laughs) years. But I think that there is a lot of momentum in that direction and it's really exciting. So, um, all right. I want to, I want to ask you because this is healthy discourse and we talk about things we're not supposed to talk about. Ah! And I love, (laughs) I, I love that we had a very just amazing conversation about this. Um, I asked Alicia, if she could help me understand back when we first met what happened 
when our powers that be, mostly the government and the media, told my our minority communities throughout the United States that they were at higher risk of severe outcome for COVID and so forth, and then followed up by asking, it seems like in the world we're living in now, there are still a lot more people of color that are wearing masks and seem to be much more afraid to this day. And I asked her where she thought the root of that was and how she's been handling it. And I would love for you to share with our audience some of your answers and insights, Alicia, because they are invaluable on this topic. Well, how much time do I have? <laughs> we, we might have to have a part two and, and, uh, and, and we follow might. up on this. We <laughs> but, might. But I'll tell you this. So, so I feel like I am, as I say, a leprechaun or a unicorn. Like, so um, I'm in this space and I'm in this world and I am a minority of minorities for so many different reasons. Um, and so you're 100% correct. I've seen this. I've witnessed this myself. Um, sadly, I think so much of this really started um, within the communities of faith. So within the African-American culture, we are so heavily dependent and reliant upon those communities of faith. And what I saw was there was this target. And there's, I mean, I even came across in, in an article where government officials were targeting certain strategies towards communities of faith because many of them were resistant towards getting, you know, vaccinated, you know, mm -hmm. or towards early vaccination. And so they were trying to target efforts and partner with these faith communities to make these congregants early adopters of the vaccine. And then, so I think that for some of the black communities, there was that coalition um, or that organization between those public health organizations and faith-based communities to kind of infiltrate communities of color um, along with just a lack of knowledge. So, and, and I think the Bible calls that ignorance. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. you know, the, the lack of knowledge. So one of the things that I've been so blessed to be a part of is the Frontline Critical Care Organization. And so we've done a lot of work with early COVID treatment and intervention. And um, I think, you know, over the course of the, you know, the past year, we've treated probably thousands of patients. But when you look at, when I look at just demographics, the amount of people of color that I treat, as opposed to, you know, the, the non-minorities, it is a fraction, a mere percent of it. And so mm -hmm. I was having this conversation about, well, well, why is that? Like, why is it that? people of color don't know about early treatment, don't know about, um, you know, that there, is, there are alternatives or other options other than vaccination. Um, I think it was just a very targeted and collected effort. So mm -hmm. you, you have these series of events that are happening that are really geared towards race relations. So you have, of course, you know, the, the riots and you have the George Floyd incident and all these things that are transpiring at the same time as the pandemic. So there's almost this distraction, if you will. And right. at the same time, you have the media propagating fear and highlighting mm -hmm. these statistics about, mm -hmm. you know, communities of color and these poor outcomes. When we right. really look at the evidence, what you see is, and what I've seen often is, the correlation is likely because of vitamin D deficiencies, because of mm -hmm. obesity, which affects many communities, not just communities of color. And right. So, but there was no education on that. There was no conversation about, hey, you're not going to die from COVID just because you're black. You're, mm -hmm. You may die from COVID because you're overweight and you're vitamin D deficient. 
And so if right. you work on those things, no matter what color you are, you will probably have better outcomes. But we see yeah. this rhetoric over and over and over again. And sadly, and I, I mean, I'm saying this firsthand from many of my family members, so many don't go out or don't know where to get accurate information from. So they rely on social media platforms or large media personalities who themselves are often misinformed to make medical decisions. Um, and so, you know, it's just a sad thing across the board. And this is something that I'm really passionate about. I try to do a lot of education um, because there is already this divide and level of mistrust between the communities of color and the medical community. Uh, mm -hmm. just because of the history of those relationships and some of the, you know, awful things that have happened in the past. And there's right. an opportunity to bridge the gap, but that requires a collective effort and accuracy and transparency and presenting everything um, so that we can have open and honest dialogues about this. So I, I'll tell you, that, that right <laughs> there gets my gears going. <laughs> well, you know, when this was first happening, I, I, you know, I had all those same thoughts that you're sharing and I'm sitting here going, we're, there is no one anywhere telling anyone, here are some things that you can do to help assess and minimize your risks. And I'm not talking about wearing a mask and washing your hands every five minutes and sanitizing your groceries. Talking about your, these are, these are risks that we see. If you have these conditions, these are things that you need to pay attention to. Yes. Not that you need to stay in your house and eat and watch more news because that's not helping anybody. We, what, you know, help people understand what, what vitamin D is and, you know, what zinc could do and, and, um, you know, just get outside and take a walk every day for 10 minutes, you know, just those kinds of things that are so good for our mental and physical health that are very simple and, and allow people to take ownership and to feel like they're making a difference rather than sitting at home shaking with fear and just continuing to take in the propaganda that you're sharing. And, and it, it, it infuriated me and it still does because yes. there are times that I see this still happening. Like I said, that, you know, it's, there are still just generally in my assessment, our city is, is very diverse and Every day I see far more African-Americans wearing masks still than I do other people. And I really think it's rooted in those early days. And it's, it's looked down upon if you don't do that still, it seems. Yeah. And, um, and I think that's so this, the judgment of each other and what we're supposed to do and not moving forward, like you said, with reliable, good information it's it's still paralyzing people here three years later. Well, I think there's this element of cultural assimilation. So you have where, to your point, um, wearing a mask or even you know showing or sharing your fully vaccinated badge of honor on Facebook becomes this idea of social acceptance. And mm -hmm. so it, it becomes more of this notion of, you know, well, I have, I've, I've been accepted and adopted into the masses or I'm doing my part. And that's one of the narratives, the rhetorics that we heard often, doing right. my part. Um, and then one of the things that I feel like has been um, the most uh, concerning for me is there has been no one or no organization, nobody um, that has gone back to kind of clean this up to say, hey, 
I know initially we told you it was okay to mask your two-year-old, but now we see that speech therapy referrals are up 300%. And so that probably wasn't a good idea. And so yeah, if you're even thinking about it, you probably shouldn't. So right. a lot of it initially was because of there's a lack of evidence, but even as the evidence and the data poured in, that the effects of some of these measures were more detrimental than they were beneficial. There was no one that really went out publicly through these mainstream platforms to denounce some of these initiatives so that people that were following those protocols had a very clear cut guidance and directive. And so I think there's still some, as they quote unquote say, misinformation, which I think is, is interesting the way that that term is used. But um, when there are very clear guidance and directives that have been published and released, there's no one publicly that endorses those on a platform where most people can adopt and believe that. And so I think that's likely what you're seeing. I've, 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 I been agree, churches, yeah. I've, I've been in churches where you still have, you know, across the pulpit, people promoting, you know, vaccines. And I'm like, okay, at, at this point, I would think that we are far enough into this where we can understand at least that this is not a one size fits all approach. Mm -hmm. um, but there, but there, there is still a, a knowledge deficit there for sure. Right. Yeah, that's, that's so that's fascinating. I think it's true. And what I think we're finding is, there are many people who m were following the accepted narrative within the science community for a long time that are very highly respected in their field. And a lot of people are now sharing, you know, their updated information and that they've changed their mind and that they're seeing these uh, negative effects and vaccine injuries and the things that happen with kids are not okay. But those people are still not being invited onto these large platforms, yes. even if they are maybe would have been invited when they were going to say something else because they have all the credentials. They're not invited now because they, they are saying something different. And it's just really unfortunate that once again, the, the discourse has been lacking so significantly. And now it seems like everyone just wants to, throw all the COVID stuff into one big trash bag and make sure it gets taken to the dump. And let's just not talk about <laughs> it anymore. Well, that's exactly it. It's so interesting because um, early on, and I am I'm not very much of a social media person at all. I'll be the first to admit, I actually just joined last year. Um, part, of, part of me opening up my business required that I do so. Um, but I was like taken aback by the amount of public disdain there was towards those that chose not to become vaccinated um, mm -hmm. early on, you know, I mean, downright to, call, to calling people selfish and every, you know, derogatory term you can think of. And uh -huh. I, I, I've quietly seen people kind of repeal and roll back um, their position without ever publicly acknowledging or denouncing their former position, but just kind of silently kind of creeping back to the corner. Um, and, and if you needed further evidence, I think if you look at the uh, adoption rate of this most recent bivalent vaccine, you'll see that nationally, you know, across the country, um, I think people are getting it. People are getting it. Yeah. Or either they're having reservations about it. Yeah. Even that needs to be addressed. Even that, like, why are people, what, what clicked for people? What made them recognize that, okay, there's probably a little something more than what meets the eye. And I'm going to choose to do differently when last year or the year prior, um, it was totally different.
Right. You know, we, you mentioned the word misinformation a few times and our dear friend, Dr. Peter McCullough talks about misinformation all the time and that it, it, we are destroying our, our language and science by continuing to call things misinformation that you don't like, that there yes. is simply information and it's the job of the scientific community and everyday people to discern and to weigh and to discuss and to do what we've always done in science and as just, you know, people that it's our job to make our own decisions is to disseminate the information and figure out, weigh it this way, that way, what's best, what's not, is this best for everybody? Is this, you know, like we've always done in science. And so automatically labeling things is so destructive for our culture, societies, sections of societies, and most definitely the the medical and scientific community. We will make no real progress if we're just going to name call people. That's exactly right. And it's very dismissive and uh, it, it completely isolates and shuts down the opinions when science has always thrived off of um, educated discussion. We've always been able to sit down with a group of, you know, like-minded, educated uh, professionals and colleagues and have a scientific discourse about what we think is appropriate. What I find is interesting is even today, you correct, correct me if I'm wrong, there is no national committee, organization, um, you know, group that has been assigned or dedicated to the number one repurposing of existing drugs for the early treatment of COVID or for just lifestyle measures or a, you know, a, a national guideline, if you will, for those folks that contract COVID. Um, it has always been a very one-sided narrative, which initially was my, my biggest um, issue that I took with this. Right. You, you have to have another option for those. There are so many reasons, some of them personal, some of them you know, faith-based, but there's so many reasons why people cannot or will not get a vaccine and what other options will you offer those those folks? And so when right. you label something misinformation, and this has happened to me, you know, a patient of mine contracted COVID, and I um I I told her I'm like, okay, great, I can keep you out of the hospital. I'm gonna send in this medication for you, and I'm gonna send it to your to the compounding pharmacy. And here's what we're gonna do. And she replied back to me and said, um, why would you send that horse medicine in for me? Mm-hmm. Of course. <laughs> and I, and so we had, I, I used the opportunity to educate, but to your point, that comes from this public, this large public narrative that is, is being uh, discussed and given to, to certain treatments um, that are less favorable. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I think that there's definitely a narrative. And to your point, misinformation cannot be everything that you don't want. Right. Exactly. That is the best definition I think I've heard. It can't be everything that you don't want. <laughs> so, um, Alicia, I would love for you to share just a little bit more about where people can find you online in your practice before we wrap up today. You are such a breath of fresh air. Oh. And I wish that everybody could be in a room with you because it just oh. brings my heart joy to um, you. You carry the Holy spirit with you everywhere you go. And so I, I, I truly believe that. And it makes me, uh, your, your courage and boldness through all of this and 
and seeing it, how God has woven your story and really shown up and shown off through you. It's just so encouraging to everyone. So tell us where we can find you. I'll, I'll tell you something. First of all, thank you. Um, I'm so grateful for you in this opportunity. And truly, that it's an honor because it truly is in him that I live and move and have my very being. So everything that I do is just an extension of that. But um, we are in Gastonia, North Carolina. So Logos Health, Logos, L-O-G-O-S. So if you're a Bible scholar, you probably know what that word means. Um, but uh, we are right across the street from the main hospital here on X-Ray Drive. The easiest way to find us is probably uh, online. So logoshealth.org, um, or you can always call or text the office. That's an easy way to get in touch with us too. And that's 704-389-3741. That's 704-389-3741. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today. And I hope you and your family enjoy a very Merry Christmas. Thank you so much. You as well. Um, love you guys so much. And thank you again for this opportunity. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.